44 years ago, this coming week, God transformed my life. God used a old high school friend to sit me down and to tell me the gospel story. And so 44 years ago, this coming week, I became a Christian. Uh, and every year at this week, I, re I, I purposely take time just to recall what God had done, where I had been, what God had done, and where I thought I might be if that hadn't happened, what my life would have been like if that friend of mine hadn't taken the time to share the good news with me. And it became good news that day. Uh, and this morning, I, I want to talk about that. Um, studying the Psalms these past weeks has been refreshing, and it's been strengthening to our souls, as well as it's been a wonderful reminder of God's love for each one of us, and God's love for us through the gospel. God's love for us through what he's done in his son, Jesus Christ. And, and that is a wonderful gift to have, to remember, like I'm remembering this week, to remember what God has done for each one of us through the gospel. But the gospel isn't complete by just its effect on us. The gospel's complete when it does its part two as we go and we share the gospel with others, as we become gospel sharers, as we become those who, who share the truth of what God has done. You know, the Garden of Eden, that was a tragic event. It was a tragic event that launched humanity into a world of darkness, into a world of sin and unimaginable suffering. It was the ruin of the unique and intimate relationship that men and women had with God. But, but God's love for his creation has no boundaries because of grace, because of God's grace. And by his grace, he planned to redeem the lost. I experienced that 44 years ago this coming Week. That, that plan was to send his son into humanity, to send his son that Jesus would become one of us, that we might, we might have someone come to us and preach the good news of saving grace. You, you are sitting here, if you are sitting here as a believer of, of one who's put your trust in Christ, you're sitting here because of saving grace. You're sitting here because God sent his son into the world. That's why you are sitting here this morning. And he came. He came to preach the good news everywhere, even in places where he was not welcomed. I don't remember much about that night that I was born again. But I, I remember my skepticism as my friend was sharing with me. I remember my doubts. I remember my unbelief. I remember my thoughts that night. And God broke through as he did with you. Jesus came to preach the good news even in places he was not welcome. And in Mark chapter 6, which is where we'll be this morning, so if you would turn to Mark chapter 6, 
Mark chapter 6, in the first 13 verses, tell of Jesus doing just that, going to a place he is unwelcomed to share the good news to people who do not want to hear it, to tell people who don't want to listen to what he has to say. Now, he was, as we read in this, if you turn and look, and we'll read the first 13 verses, verse 1 of chapter 6. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave a gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaim that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that tells the true story of the coming of your son, Jesus, and his reason for coming, to save humanity, to save us from our sins to save us from darkness, to save us from eternal separation from you, to save us from the tragic ravages of sin. And thank you for the hope you give us in your word. May that hope rise up in every person here this morning as they are reminded of the saving love of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here, Mark Mark paints two portraits for us in this passage. The first portrait is a portrait of Christ's coming, and the second portrait is a portrait of the disciples going. And in the portrait of Christ's coming, it simply is that Christ came to preach the good news. In, In Mark 5, as you read through Mark 5, Jesus performs, he's in Capernaum, and he performs many miracles, and he has large crowds that are attracted to him, that are following him. But things are very different in chapter 6. At the beginning of chapter 6, he went away from there, from Capernaum, and came to his hometown. Now, now Nazareth is a tiny town. It's 
It's about a 25-mile journey from where Jesus was in Capernaum, and no large crowds followed him, only his disciples. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So there's no attraction. There's no large crowd coming. And there, there's, there's not a lot going on in Nazareth. And, he, and so he heads there. Where This is where his family and his friends are. This is where he grew up. This is where everyone knew everyone else. This is where everyone knew everyone else's business. That's, that's Nazareth. That's a small hometown. And Jesus, he did not go back there for old time's sake. He didn't go back, as we would see in the Christmas commercial, w- waiting for a warm cup of coffee and a great family greeting. That, that is not what happened. He, he went back because he was engaged in gospel work. The family, the family visit, this was not something he was actually looking forward to. If you go back to chapter 3 in Mark, you see that when Jesus was preaching, his family, his mother and his brothers and his sisters stood apart and said, basically, he's crazy. We should put him away. That's, that's where he's going back to. That's who he's going to interact with. And he would not be receiving a warm welcome when he got there. He went back, though, because he had to preach the good news everywhere, even where he was unwelcome. He was willing to go back. And he's asked to preach on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And his message is the same message he gave everywhere he went. Repent. Repent of your sins because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of those sins. And that, when he says that in the synagogue on the Sabbath, when he says that, the fireworks begin. That's that's when things begin to get really troublesome. Mark records that they are astonished. Verse 2, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now, when you read the first part of that, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and John and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not these his sisters? I mean, it's like, oh yeah, I mean, he's probably saying great things and that's why they are astonished. You know, I mean, we, we watch this guy work among us. He's just a common laborer, you know. Where did he get these things that he's saying? He grew up among us. Where did he get these wisdom? He's no more educated than we are. How are such mighty works done by his hands? And they, they knew, they would have known. Word gets passed that, that he had been doing mighty works in Capernaum just you know 25 miles away. And then, and then they make this comment, he is the son of Mary. Now, now in, in Old Testament and New Testament times, you were not referred to as the son of your mother. You were referred to, he would have been the son of Joseph. So to refer to him as son of Mary is to bring light to what they would say is his illegitimacy. They were mocking him. And this would, this would very well could include his family. You know, we know his brothers and sisters. They live here among us. We've known him all his life. There's nothing special about this family. And, and, and they're astonished. And then they take offense at him at the end of verse 3. Why? He's telling them to repent. No wonder he, this, his family thinks he's crazy. 
Who does he think he is? God. And rather than believing his message, they are deeply offended and resentful. And Mark uses a word in the Greek here where the word offense, they were scandalized. They were, they were scandalized that this man who they grew up with, who they knew, who is just a carpenter, who's probably an illegitimate son, is telling them to repent of their sins. Who does he think he is? And Jesus responds to this. He says, a prophet, quoting a common Jewish proverb, in today's vernacular, when, you, when he says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, we, we would say familiarity breeds contempt. That's, that's what they're saying here. Their own prejudice and their own unbelief had, had so gripped their hearts and so blinded their eyes and their thinking, they could not see the God of the universe standing right in front of them. That's how great their unbelief was. And, and then Mark, Mark records, I think, some of the most chilling words in all of the New Testament. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives, in his own household. And then verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there. Now think about that. He could do no mighty work there. What chilling words that Jesus would do no mighty work there. It was not that it was physically impossible for him to do that because he was fully God and fully man at the same time. He could very well do miracles. He could do any miracles he wanted at any time for he is God and he can do anything. But, but in that atmosphere of unbelief and rejection, it would have been morally wrong for him to exercise his power because unbelief, unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral one. It's a problem of the heart. It's an arrogance of the heart. It's a self-righteousness of the heart. And so they, they've rejected the Christ who came to save. And so he does no miracles there. And in, in the natural, why Jesus goes back to his hometown makes no sense at all. He, he knew what he experienced back in Mark 3. And he is well aware that a prophet in his own hometown, among his own relatives and his friends, will receive no honor. And yet he still goes back because, as we read at the end of verse 5, he says, and they could do no mighty work there except, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And so we see the mercy of God overcome even the unbelief in that area, for those who did not reject him, for those who did respond to him. He went, regardless of the rejection he would experience, regardless of the trouble that would happen, he went for one purpose, to preach the gospel out of love for his family and his friends and the town that he grew up in. That's how Christ came to you out of love, 
when you were not looking for him, when you were not trying to find him. And although rejected and resented, Jesus remained and remains undeterred, undeterred to seek and save the lost. Even in the midst of rejection and ridicule and unbelief, his mercy triumphs over judgment as some are healed here, even though they did not deserve his kindness, even though we did not deserve his kindness. This is the gospel, grace and mercy to undeserving sinners who mock and reject the Savior. Mercy that triumphs even in the darkest place. How dark? Well, so dark that look at verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And now the tide is turned. In just a few verses earlier, they were astonished at his teaching. And now he is marveling. Their unbelief is so pronounced that he marvels at them. The tragic result of their unbelief is that few are healed. And then, and then here, here's, here's what happens. The end of verse 6, and he went about among the villages teaching. He left. He leaves Nazareth. He leaves Nazareth behind. And in essence, he, he does what he just tells the disciple, what he's going to tell the disciples to do in a few, a few short verses. He says, shake the dust of your, of the, your feet and, and leave. That, that's, that's a portrait of Christ coming. He comes even when he's not wanted. He comes to seek and save the lost. He comes out of love. He comes to save. Now we see a portrait of his disciples going. Mark, Mark, this is, th these two passages are connected. Mark goes on to tell us, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now you got to remember, the disciples just watched all of this. And now he's sending these disciples out to do the same thing, to experience possibly the very same thing he just experienced, and he's telling them how it's going to happen. These, these two narratives are wonderfully back-to-back -back because they describe the same mission. The disciples are with Jesus for a purpose. They're learning a lesson in Nazareth. He came that the world might be saved. They're called for the same reason, even if they are rejected. They're called to go, that others might be saved. Remember early on in Mark, Jesus told his disciples, I will make you fishers of men. And now that time had come. Now that time had come for them to go. They have seen up to this time numerous demonstrations of his authority and his power. They've seen, obviously, significant opposition. And yet they saw that Jesus never loses heart. He never loses hope. And he goes on faithfully to preach the gospel, whatever the cost, wherever he is at. He wants his disciples to know that they have his authority. And he called out the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. The same authority they had seen him when he, he had cast out demons, when he heals the sick. They know now they have that authority. He wants them to know what they've got. Now, it's not just authority they have. It's Christ. It's the presence of the Savior. 
He, he not only came and took on flesh, he keeps coming through his church, through his people. Jesus does not want his disciples to be deterred. He does not want them to be discouraged. He wants them to know when they go, he is with them. And then he tells them how they are to go. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, uh, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals. I don't understand that one. And not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, this is how you are to enter a house. It's interesting to read how he instructs them to go. Instructions that are written, by the way, for us as well, bringing it to our culture and our day. He, he wisely crafts their understanding of ministry as one of complete dependence upon him. That's what he's making note of here. When he says, no money, no bag, no belt, no bread, you know, except a staff, just wear sandals, don't take two tunics. What he's communicating is, when you go, you're going in my authority, but go in dependence. Go in humility. Go where you trust me, that I am present with you when you go. If you go in my authority, that's all you'll need. If you go humbly and wholly dependent upon my provision, you'll be cared for. If you are among the lost, go among the lost. Spend time with them. Eat with them. Live with them. Get to know them. Be in their homes. And yes, when you go, you will face difficult situations. You will face unbelief. You will face rejection. Your message will be rejected as you saw my message was rejected. But you still must preach. You still must preach. Now, when he tells them to shake the dust of their feet as a testimony against them, this is not a sign of self-righteousness but it's simply a serious warning that rejecting Christ has serious consequences. It, it also reveals a sense of urgency he has for his disciples, which is basically, listen, if they're not going to listen to you, in a sense, not casting your pearl before swine, if they're not listening to you, don't waste your time anymore. Move on. It's no longer your concern. But you are to go. I know some of you have heard this before, but it bears repeating. In February of 1945, 70,000 Marines landed on a small strategic strip of land in the South Pacific known as Iwo Jima. 22,000 elite Japanese soldiers known as the Red Sun were waiting, ready to defend the island. No one had any idea what to expect, and what they eventually experienced when they landed on shore was beyond their imagination. It took over one month to capture the island four and a half miles long and two and a half miles wide. Half of the 92,000 men fighting were either wounded or killed, trying to take or defend the higher ground, the most valuable area being Mount Suribachi. The ascent of Mount Suribachi began on February 19th and ended four grueling and costly days later on February 23rd when six soldiers finally planted an American flag at the summit. A photograph that was taken of that moment is the most well-known photograph in American history. That flag being planted signified victory. It signified that the battle had been won. 
often sharing the gospel is no less a battle of epic proportions for us. And the ground that we fight on is often littered with countless casualties. But, brothers and sisters, victory has been promised by Jesus, who, who secured our enemy's defeat when he hung on Calvary. His death defeated sin and death, and his resurrection raised God's flag that we might plant the gospel flag in our time. But, but listen, the battle of unbelief is not always out there. Sometimes it's right here. Sometimes it's, it's in our own hearts. Is telling them the gospel really going to make a difference? I don't see it always work. I, don't, I see it rarely work. Do I really have Christ's authority? Is Christ really present with me? I, I've tried and I'm discouraged. I've said the same thing over and over again to the same people. W what am I to do? Listen, the gospel, as promised by Paul, it is the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not the words we speak. It's the presence of Christ who is there. He came and he keeps coming through his people. He's always going to be with us. He promised that in Matthew 28. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is the Savior who came, and he is the Savior who keeps coming through his disciples. And here's the reward for their obedience in verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And they heard the good news. They repented. They came to faith in Christ. Their obedience was rewarded, and it's evident here. And as promised, Jesus' authority went with them as it goes with us when we go. And so over these past months, we have been, we've been locked down. We have been isolated. We have been alone. We have, we've had very little contact. But our mission as a church, our gospel, the wonderful gospel that encourages us each day in the midst of a pandemic or in the time of persecution, that that gospel, that gospel also has to go out. We're, we're not homebound forever. And the people that we interact with, they need the gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, Grace Church exists to be a gospel-proclaiming church. And so as we are gathered here this morning, yeah, we're, we don't have a meeting place right now, but God has a place for us. We don't, we don't always get to interact with as many people as we used to, but we get to interact with people. And all it's just one person. My life changed 44 years ago this coming week because of one person, not a group of people, just one person. And so having been in the Psalms is wonderful, but it's time to look outward. It's not time just to continue looking inward. It's time to look outward that we might proclaim what God has called us to proclaim. Listen, here, here's the point of this message. To be a disciple of Christ is to make disciples for Christ. That's what we're here for. So let us do that, brothers and sisters.
Father, thank you for your word that inspires us, that challenges us, that encourages us, that we might go forth and be the men and women, the disciples you have called us to be. Lord, thank you that you, your authority goes with us. Thank you that your presence goes with us. And Lord, we ask that you would allow us the joy and the privilege of interacting with others, that we might tell them the saving truth of Christ crucified. In Jesus' name, amen.